This is an audio version of some excerpts from Intro to Brain-like AGI Safety by Stephen Burns, published on the 9th of February 2022. These excerpts are included in the core readings for the AGI Safety Fundamentals course. We begin with Part 3, Two Subsystems, Learning and Steering. 3.1. Post-Summary, Table of Contents. In the previous post, I defined the notion of learning from scratch algorithms, a broad category that includes, among other things, any randomly initialized machine learning algorithm, no matter how complicated, and any memory system that starts out empty. I then proposed a division of the brain into two parts based on whether or not they learn from scratch. Now I'm giving them names. The learning subsystem is the 96% of the brain that learns from scratch, basically the telencephalon and the cerebellum. The steering subsystem is the 4% of the brain that doesn't learn from scratch, in quotes, basically the hypothalamus and the brainstem. See the previous post for a more detailed anatomical breakdown. This post will be a discussion of this two subsystems picture in general, and of the steering subsystem in particular. In section 3.2, I'll talk about the big picture of what these subsystems do and how they interact. As an example, I'll explain why each subsystem needs its own sensory processing circuitry. For example, why visual inputs get processed by both the visual cortex in the learning subsystem and the superior colliculus in the steering subsystem. In section 3.3, I'll acknowledge that this two-subsystem picture has some echoes of the discredited triune brain theory. But I'll argue that the various problems with triune brain theory do not apply to my two-subsystem picture. In section 3.4, I'll discuss three categories of ingredients that could go into a steering subsystem. Category A, things that are plausibly essential for general intelligence, for example, an innate drive for curiosity. Category B, everything else in the human steering subsystem. For example, an innate drive to be kind to your friends. And category C, any other possibility that an AGI programmer might dream up, even if it's radically different from anything in humans or animals. For example, an innate drive to correctly predict stock prices. Audio note, then there are summaries of sections 3.5, 6, 7, 8 and 9. Those are not included in this excerpt, but I'll read out the summaries. You can check out the full sections in the original post. In section 3.5, I'll relate those categories to how I expect people to build brain-like AGIs, arguing that brain-like AGIs with radically non-human and dangerous motivations is not an oxymoron. Rather, it's the default expected outcome unless we work to prevent it. In section 3.6, I'll argue the fact that Jeff Hawkins has a two-subsystems perspective similar to mine, yet argues against AGI catastrophic accidents being a risk. I'll say where I think he goes wrong. Sections 3.7 and 3.8 will be the final two parts of my Timelines to Brain-like AGI discussion. The first part was section 2.8 in the previous post, where I argued that reverse engineering the learning subsystem, at least well enough to enable brain-like AGI, is something that could plausibly happen soon, like within the next decade or two, although it could also take longer. Here, I'll complete that story by arguing that this same thing is true of reverse engineering the steering subsystem, at least well enough to enable brain-like AGI and of getting the algorithms cleaned up and scaled up, running model trainings and so on. Section 3.9 is a quick non-technical discussion on the wildly divergent attitudes that people take towards the timeline to AGI, even when they agree on the probabilities. For example, you can have two people agree that the odds are 3 to 1 against having AGI by 2042, but one might emphasise how low that probability is. You see, AGI probably isn't going to arrive for decades, 
while the other might emphasize how high that probability is. I'll talk a bit about the factors that can underlie those attitudes. Section 3.2 Big Picture In the last post, I claimed that 96% of the brain by volume, roughly the telencephalon, neocortex, hippocampus, amygdala, most of the basal ganglia and a few other things, and cerebellum, learns from scratch, in quotes, in the sense that early in life its outputs are all random garbage, but over time they become extremely helpful thanks to within-lifetime learning. More details and caveats in the previous post. I'm now calling this part of the brain the learning subsystem. The rest of the brain, mainly the brainstem and hypothalamus, I'm calling the steering subsystem. Here's a diagram. It's got two boxes, one for learning subsystem and one for steering subsystem. We have inputs like vision, interoception, etc. going to both of them. The outputs all come out of the steering subsystem, like skeletal muscles, autonomic actions, hormones, etc. And between the two subsystems, we have an array of model outputs flowing from the learning subsystem to the steering subsystem. And flowing back from the steering subsystem, we have an array of supervisory and control signals. Within learning subsystem, we have this trained model image, which shows a network of neurons essentially connected by lines. That's labelled with built from scratch, in quotes, by within-lifetime learning algorithm, and horrifically complicated by adulthood. With the steering subsystem, it's also labelled more or less hard-coded by the genome. It's the home of species-specific instincts. The text goes on. How are we supposed to think about these? Let's start with the learning subsystem. As discussed in the last post, this subsystem has some interconnected innate learning algorithms with innate neural architectures and innate hyperparameters. It also has lots, as in billions or trillions, of adjustable parameters of some sort, usually assumed to be synapse strength, but this is controversial and I won't get into it. And the values of these parameters start out random. The learning subsystem's algorithms thus emit random, unhelpful-for-the-organism outputs at first. For example, perhaps they cause the organism to twitch. But over time, various supervisory signals and corresponding update rules sculpt the values of the system's adjustable parameters, tailoring them within the animal's lifetime to do tricky, biologically adaptive things. Next up, the steering subsystem. How do we intuitively think about that one? First of all, imagine a repository with lots of species-specific instincts and behaviours, all hard-coded in the genome. In order to vomit, contract muscles A, B and C and release hormones D, E, and F. If sensory inputs satisfy the thus-and-such heuristics, then I am probably eating something healthy and energy-dense. This is good, and I should react by issuing signals G, H, and I. If sensory inputs satisfy the thus-and-such heuristics, then I'm probably leaning over a precipice. This is bad, and I should react by issuing signals J, K, and L. When I'm cold, get goosebumps. When I'm undernourished, do the following tasks. 1. Emit a hunger sensation. 2. Start rewarding the neocortex for getting food. 3. Reduce fertility and growth. 4. Reduce pain sensitivity, etc. And there's a reference linked here in the post. An especially important task of the steering subsystem is sending supervisory and control signals to the learning subsystem. Hence the name. The steering subsystem steers the learning algorithm to do adaptive things. For example, how is it that a human neocortex learns to do adaptive for a human things, while a squirrel neocortex learns to do adaptive for a squirrel things? if they're both vaguely similar learning-from-scratch algorithms. The main part of the answer, I claim, is that learning algorithms get steered differently in the two cases. An especially important aspect here is the reward signal for reinforcement learning. 
you can imagine that the human brainstem sends up a reward for achieving high social status, whereas the squirrel brainstem sends up a reward for burying nuts in the fall. This is oversimplified. I'll be elaborating on this story as we go. By the same token, in ML, the same learning algorithm can get really good at playing chess, given a certain reward signal and sensory data, or can get really good at playing Go, given a different reward signal and sensory data. To be clear, despite the name steering in quotes, the learning subsystem is but one task of the steering subsystem. The steering subsystem can also just up and do things all by itself, without any involvement from the learning subsystem. This is a good plan if doing those things is important right from birth, or if messing them up even once is fatal. An example I mentioned in the last post is that mice apparently have a brainstem bird-detecting circuit wired directly to a brainstem running-away circuit. An important dynamic to keep in mind is that the brain's steering subsystem cannot directly access our common-sense understanding of the world. For example, the steering subsystem can implement reactions like, when eating, manufacture digestive enzymes. But as soon as we start talking about the abstract concepts that we use to navigate the world, like grades, debt, popularity, soy sauce, and so on, We have to assume that the steering subsystem has no idea what any of these things are, unless we also come up with some story for how it found out. And sometimes there is such a story. We'll see a lot of these kinds of stories as we go, particularly post number 7, for a simple example of wanting to eat cake, and post number 13, for the trickier case of social instincts. Section 3.2.1. Each subsystem generally needs its own sensory processor. For example, in the case of vision, the steering subsystem has its superior colliculus, while the learning subsystem has its visual cortex. For taste, the steering subsystem has its gustatory nucleus of the medulla, while the learning subsystem has its gustatory cortex, etc. Isn't that redundant? Some people think so. The book Accidental Mind by David Linden cites the existence of two sensory processing systems as a beautiful example of kludgy brain design, resulting from evolution's lack of foresight. But I disagree. They're not redundant. If I were making an AGI, I would absolutely put in two sensory processing systems. Why? Suppose that evolution wants to build a reaction circuit where a genetically hardwired sensory cue triggers a genetically hardwired response. For example, as mentioned above, if you're a mouse, then an expanding dark blob in the upper field of view often indicates an incoming bird and therefore the mouse genome hardwires an expanding dark blob detector to a running-away behavioural circuit. And I claim that, when building this reaction, the genome cannot use the visual cortex as its expanding dark blob detector. Why not? Remember the previous post. The visual cortex learns from scratch. It takes unstructured visual data and builds a predictive model around it. You can loosely think of the visual cortex as a scrupulous cataloguer of patterns in the inputs, and of patterns in the patterns in the inputs, etc. One of these patterns might correspond to expanding dark blobs in the upper field of view. Or maybe not. And even if one does, the genome doesn't know in advance which precise neurons will be storing that particular pattern, and thus the genome cannot hardwire those neurons to the running away behavioural controller. So in summary, first, building sensory processing into the steering subsystem is a good idea because there are lots of areas where it's highly adaptive to attach a genetically hardwired sensory cue to a corresponding reaction. In the human case, think fear of heights, fear of snakes, aesthetic of potential habitats, aesthetics of potential mates, taste of nutritious food, sound of screaming, feel of pain, and so on. Next, building sensory processing into the learning subsystem is also a good idea. 
because using learning from scratch algorithms to learn arbitrary predictive patterns in sensory input within a lifetime is, well, a really good idea. After all, many useful sensory patterns are hyper-specific. For example, the smell of this one specific individual tree, such that a corresponding hardwired sensory pattern detector could not have evolved. Thus, the brain's two sensory processing systems is not an example of kludgy design. It's an example of Orgel's second rule. Evolution is cleverer than you are. Section 3.3. Triune brain theory is wrong, but let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. In the 1960s and 70s, Paul McLean and Carl Sagan invented and popularised an idea called the triune brain. According to this theory, the brain consists of three layers, stacked on top of each other like an ice cream cone, and which evolved in sequence. First, the lizard brain, in quotes, aka the old brain or reptilian brain, closest to the spinal cord, consisting of the brainstem and basal ganglia. Second, the limbic system, in quotes, wrapped around that, consisting of the amygdala, hippocampus and hypothalamus. And finally, layered on the outside, the neocortex, aka new brain, the pièce de résistance, the pinnacle of evolution, the home of human intelligence. And here's a diagram that shows the bad triune brain model. The reptilian brain on the inside with instinct and survival, then the limbic system wrapped around the reptilian brain with emotions, and then wrapped around that we have the neocortex with speech, logic and higher thinking skills. The text goes on. Well, it's by now well known that the triune brain theory is rubbish. It lumps brain parts in a way that makes neither functional nor embryological sense, and the evolutionary story is profoundly wrong. For example, half a billion years ago, the earliest vertebrates already had the precursors of all three layers of the triune brain, including a pallium, in quotes, which would eventually, in our lineage, separate into the neocortex, hippocampus, part of the amygdala, etc. There's a reference here. So, yeah. Triune brain theory is rubbish, but I freely admit, the story I like, the previous section, kind of rings of triune brain theory. My steering subsystem looks suspiciously like McLean's reptilian brain. My learning subsystem looks suspiciously like McLean's limbic system and neocortex. McLean and I have some disagreements about exactly what goes where, and whether the ice cream cone has two scoops versus three, but there's definitely a resemblance. My two subsystem story in this post is not original. You'll hear a similar story from Jeff Hawkins, Dilip George, Elon Musk, and others. But those other people tell this story in the tradition of triune brain theory, and in particular, keeping its problematic aspects, like the old brain and new brain terminology. There's no need to do that. We can keep the two subsystem story while throwing out the triune brain baggage. So my story is, I think that half a billion years ago, the earliest vertebrates had a simpler, learning from scratch algorithm in their proto-telencephalon. And it was steered, in quotes, by supervisory signals from their simpler proto-brainstem and hypothalamus. Indeed, we can go back even earlier than vertebrates. There seems to be a homology between the learning from scratch cortex in humans and the learning from scratch mushroom body in fruit flies. Further discussion at a link here. I note, for example, that in fruit flies, odour signals go to both the mushroom body and the lateral horn in beautiful agreement with the general principle that sensory inputs need to go to both the learning subsystem and the steering subsystem. Anyway, in the 700 million years since our last common ancestor with insects, both the learning subsystem and the steering subsystem have dramatically expanded and elaborated in our lineage. But that doesn't mean that they contributed equally to human intelligence, in quotes. Again, both are essential, 
but I think it's strongly suggestive that around 96% of human brain volume is in the learning subsystem. Focusing more specifically on the telencephalon part, which includes the neocortex in mammals, its fraction of brain volume is 87% in humans, 79% in chimps, 77% in certain parrots, 51% in chickens, 45% in crocodiles, and just 22% in frogs. There's an obvious pattern here, and I think it's right. Namely, that to get recognisably intelligent and flexible behaviour, you need a massively scaled-up learning subsystem. See? I can tell my two-subsystem story with none of that old-brain, new-brain nonsense. Section 3.4. Three types of ingredients in a steering subsystem. I'll start with the summary table and then elaborate on it in the following subsections. 3.4.1. Summary table. So this has columns for category of steering subsystem ingredient, then possible examples of that, whether it's present in competent humans, and whether it's expected in future AGIs. So first we have things the steering subsystem needs to do in order to get general intelligence. Some examples, curiosity drive, question mark, drive to attend to certain types of things in the environment, like humans, language, technology, etc., question mark, and general involvement in helping establish the learning subsystem neural architecture, question mark. Present incompetent humans, yes, by definition, and expected in future AGIs, yes. Next, everything else in a neurotypical human's steering subsystem. Possible examples, social instincts, which underlie altruism, love, remorse, guilt, sense of justice, loyalty, etc. And drives underlying disgust, aesthetics, transcendence, serenity, awe, hunger, pain, fear of spiders, etc. Present incompetent humans? Often, but not always. For example, high-functioning sociopaths seem to be missing some of the usual social instincts. And expected in AGI? Not by default, but it's possible if we, one, figure out exactly how they work, and two, convince AGI developers to put them in. And third, every other possibility, most of which are completely unlike anything in the steering subsystem of humans, or indeed any animal. Some possible examples, drive to increase a company's bank account balance, drive to invent a better solar cell, drive to do whatever my human supervisor wants me to do. There's a catch. No one knows how to implement this one. Present incompetent humans? No. Expected in AGI? Yes, by default. If something is a bad idea, we can try to convince AGI developers not to do that. Section 3.4.2. Aside, what do I mean by drives, in quotes? I'll elaborate on this picture in later posts, but for now, let's just say that the learning subsystem does reinforcement learning, among other things, and the steering subsystem sends it rewards. The components of the reward function relate to what I'll call innate drives. They're the root cause of why some things are inherently motivating or appetitive, and other things are inherently demotivating or aversive. Explicit goals like, I want to get out of debt, are different from innate drives. Explicit goals come out of a complicated dance between innate drives in the steering subsystem and learned content in the learning subsystem. Again, much more on that topic in future posts. Remember, innate drives are in the steering subsystem, whereas the abstract concepts that make up your conscious world are in the learning subsystem. For example, if I say something like, altruism-related innate drives, you need to understand that I'm not talking about the abstract concept of altruism, as defined in an English-language dictionary, but rather some innate steering subsystem circuitry which is upstream of the fact that neurotypical people sometimes find altruistic actions to be inherently motivating. 
There is some relationship between the abstract concepts and the innate circuitry, but it might be a complicated one. Nobody expects a one-to-one relation between n discrete innate circuits and a corresponding set of n English language words describing emotions and drives. Well, maybe some people expect there's a one-to-one correspondence between English language abstract concepts like sadness and corresponding innate reactions. If you read the book How Emotions Are Made, Lisa Feldman Barrett spends hundreds of pages belaboring this point. She must have been responding to somebody, right? I mean, it feels to me like an absurd straw man to say each and every situation that a native English speaker would describe as sadness corresponds to the exact same innate reaction with the exact same facial expression. I'd be surprised if even Paul Ekman, whom Barrett was supposedly rebutting, actually believes that, but I don't know. With that out of the way, let's move on to more details about that table above. 3.4.3. Category A. Things the steering subsystem needs to do in order to get general intelligence. For example, a curiosity drive. Let's start with the curiosity drive. If you're not familiar with the background of curiosity in ML, I recommend The Alignment Problem by Brian Christian, Chapter 6, which contains the gripping story of how researchers eventually got RL agents to win the Atari game Montezuma's Revenge. Curiosity drives seem essential to good performance in ML, and humans also seem to have an innate curiosity drive. I assume that future AGI algorithms will need a curiosity drive as well, or else they just won't work. To be more specific, I think this is a bootstrapping issue. I think we need a curiosity drive early in training, but can probably turn it off eventually. Specifically, let's say there's an AGI that's generally knowledgeable about the world and itself, and capable of getting things done. And right now it's trying to invent a better solar cell. I claim it probably doesn't need to feel an innate curiosity drive. Instead, it may seek new information and seek surprises, as if it were innately curious, because it has learned through experience that seeking those things tends to be an effective strategy for inventing a much better solar cell. In other words, something like curiosity can be motivating as a means to an end, even if it's not motivating as an end in itself. Curiosity can be a learned, metacognitive heuristic. See Instrumental Convergence, with a link here to more information about that. But that argument does not apply early in training, when the AGI starts from scratch, knowing nothing about the world or itself. Instead, early in training, I think we really need the steering subsystem to be holding the learning subsystem's hand and pointing it in the right directions, if we want AGI. Another possible item in category A is an innate drive to pay attention to certain things in the environment, for example, human activities, or human language, or technology. I don't know for sure that this is necessary, but it seems to me that a curiosity drive by itself wouldn't do what we want it to do. It would be completely undirected. Maybe it would spend eternity running rule 110 in its head, finding deeper and deeper patterns while completely ignoring the physical universe. Or maybe it would find deeper and deeper patterns in the shapes of clouds, while completely ignoring everything about humans and technology. In the human brain case, the human brainstem definitely has a mechanism for forcing attention onto human faces, and I strongly suspect that there's a system that forces attention onto human speech sounds as well. I could be wrong, but my hunch is that something like that will need to be in AGIs too. As above, if this drive is necessary at all, it might only be necessary early in training. What else might be in category A? On the table above, I wrote the vague general involvement in helping establish the learning subsystem neural architecture. This includes sending reward signals and error signals and hyperparameters, etc., to particular parts of the neural architecture in the learning subsystem. For example, in post number 6, I'll talk about how only part of the neural architecture gets the main RL reward signal. 
I think of these things as one aspect of how the learning subsystem's neural architecture is actually implemented. AGI will have some kind of neural architecture too, though maybe not exactly the same as humans. Therefore, they might need some of the same kinds of signals. I talked about neural architecture briefly in section 2.8 of the last post, but mostly it's irrelevant to this series, and I won't talk about it beyond this unhelpfully vague paragraph. There might be other things in category A that I'm not thinking of. Section 3.4.4, category B, everything else in the human steering subsystem, for example, altruism-related drives. I'll jump right into what I think is most important, social instincts, including various drives related to altruism, sympathy, love, guilt, remorse, status, jealousy, sense of fairness, etc. Key question, how do I know that social instincts belong here in category B? That is, that they aren't one of the category A things that are essential for general intelligence. Well, for one thing, look at high-functioning sociopaths. I've had the unfortunate experience of getting to know a couple of them very well in my day. They understand the world and themselves and language and math and science and technology, and they could make elaborate plans to successfully accomplish impressive feats. If there were an AI that could do everything that a high-functioning sociopath could do, we would unhesitatingly call it AGI. Now, I think high-functioning sociopaths have some social instincts. They're more interested in manipulating people than manipulating toys. But their social instincts seem to be very different from those of a neurotypical person. Then, on top of that, we can consider people with autism and people with schizophrenia. And a person called SM, with more information at a link here, who is missing her amygdala and more or less lacks negative social emotions. And on and on. All these groups of people have general intelligence, but their social instincts or drives are all quite different from each other's. I wouldn't suggest that the steering subsystem circuitry underlying social instincts is built in a fundamentally different way in these different groups. That would be evolutionarily implausible. Rather, I think there are lots of adjustable parameters on how strong the different drives are, and they can be set to wildly different values, including the possibility that a drive is set to be so weak as to be effectively absent. See my speculation on autism and psychopathy linked here. All things considered, I find it very hard to believe that any aspect of social instincts is essential for general intelligence. I think it's at least open to question whether social instincts are even helpful for general intelligence. For example, if you look at the world's most brilliant scientific minds, I'd guess that people with neurotypical social instincts are, if anything, slightly underrepresented. One reason this matters is that, I claim, social instincts underlie the desire to behave ethically. Again, consider high-functioning sociopaths. They can understand honour and justice and ethics if they try, in the sense of correctly answering quiz questions about what is or isn't honourable, etc. They're just not motivated by it. See John Ronson's The Psychopath Test for a fun discussion of attempts to teach empathy to psychopaths. The students merely wound up better able to fake empathy in order to manipulate people. Quote from one person who taught such a class, quote, I guess we had inadvertently created a finishing school for them, end quote. If you think about it, it makes sense. Suppose I tell you, you really ought to put pebbles in your ears. And you say, why? And I say, because, you know, eat your ears. They don't have any pebbles in them, but they really should. And again, you say, why? At some point, this conversation has to ground out at something that you find inherently motivating or demotivating in and of itself. And I claim that social instincts, the various innate drives related to sense of fairness and sympathy and loyalty and so on, are ultimately providing the ground on which those intuitions stand. I'm not taking a stand on moral realism versus moral relativism here, that is, the question of whether there is a fact of the matter about what is ethical versus unethical. 
Instead, I'm saying that if there's an agent that is completely lacking in any innate drives that might spur a desire to act ethically, then we can't expect the agent to act ethically, no matter how intelligent and capable it is. Why would it? Granted, it might act ethically as a means to an end, for example, to win allies, but that doesn't count. More discussion and intuition pumps in my comment linked here. That's all I want to say about social instincts for now. I'll return to them in post number 13. What else goes in category B? Lots of things. There's disgust and aesthetics and transcendence and serenity and awe and hunger and pain and fear of spiders, etc. Section 3.4.5. Category C. Every other possibility. For example, the drive to increase my bank account balance. When people make AGIs, they can put whatever they want into the reward function. This would be analogous to inventing some new innate drives out of whole cloth. And these can be innate drives that are radically unlike anything in humans or animals. Why might the future AGI programmers invent new-to-the-world innate drives? Because it's the obvious thing to do. Go kidnap a random ML researcher from the halls of NeurIPS, drive them to an abandoned warehouse, and force them to make a bank account balance increasing AI using reinforcement learning. I suppose I could have hired an ML researcher instead, but who could afford the salary? I bet you anything that when you look at their source code, you're going to find a reward function that involves the bank account balance. You won't find anything like that among the genetically hardwired circuitry in the human brainstem. It's a new-to-the-world innate drive. Not only is put in an innate drive for increasing the bank account balance the obvious thing to do, but I think it would actually work for a while, and then it would fail catastrophically. It would fail as soon as the AI became competent enough to find out-of-the-box strategies to increase the bank account balance, like borrowing money, hacking into the bank website, and so on. Related, hilarious and terrifying list of historical examples of AIs finding unintended out-of-the-box strategies for maximising a reward, linked here. More on this in future posts. In fact, this bank account balance example is one of the many, many possible drives that would plausibly lead to an AGI harbouring a secret motivation to escape human control and kill everyone. See post number one. So, these kinds of motivations are the worst. They're dangling right in front of everyone's faces. They're the best way to get things done and publish papers and beat benchmarks if the AGI is not overly clever. And then when the AGI becomes competent enough, they lead to catastrophic accidents. Maybe you're thinking, it's really obvious that an AGI with an all-consuming innate drive to increase a certain bank account balance is an AGI that would try to escape human control and self-reproduce, etc. Do you really believe that future AGI programmers would be so reckless as to put in something like that? Well, um, yes. Yes, I do. But even setting that aside for the sake of argument, there's a bigger problem. We don't currently know how to code up any innate drive whatsoever, such that the resulting AGI would definitely stay under control. Even the drives that sound benign are probably not, at least not in our current state of knowledge. Much more on this in later posts, especially number 10. To be sure, Category C is a very big tent. I would not be at all surprised if there exist Category C innate drives that would be very good for AGI safety. We just need to find them. I'll be exploring this design space later in the series. That's the end of the first excerpt. Now there's an excerpt from Part 6, Big Picture of Motivation, Decision-Making and RL. This one's from the 3rd of March, 2022. Section 6.1, Post Summary and Table of Contents. Thus far in the series, post number one set out some definitions and motivations, like what is brain-like AGI safety, and why should we care? 
host number two and number three split the brain into a learning subsystem, the telencephalon and cerebellum, that learns from scratch using learning algorithms, and a steering subsystem, the hypothalamus and brainstem, that is mostly genetically hardwired and executes innate species-specific instincts and reactions. Then in post number four, I talked about the short-term predictor, a circuit which learns via supervised learning to predict a signal in advance of its arrival, but only by perhaps a fraction of a second. Post number five then argued that if we form a closed loop involving both a set of short-term predictors in the learning subsystem and a corresponding set of hardwired circuits in the steering subsystem, we can get a long-term predictor, in quotes. I noted that the long-term predictor circuit is closely related to temporal difference learning, or TD learning. Now, in this post, we fill in the last ingredients, roughly the actor part of actor-critic reinforcement learning, or RL. To get a whole big picture of motivation and decision-making in the human brain. I'm saying human brain to be specific, but it would be a similar story in any other mammal, and to a lesser extent in any vertebrate. The reason I care about motivation and decision-making is that if we eventually build brain-like AGIs, see post 1, we'll want to build them so that they have some motivations, for example, being helpful, and not others. For example, escaping human control and self-reproducing around the internet. Much more on that topic in later posts. And a teaser for upcoming posts? The next post, number 7, will walk through a concrete example of the model in this post, where we can watch an innate drive lead to the formation of an explicit goal, and adoption and execution of a plan to accomplish it. Then, starting in post number eight, we'll switch gears. And from then on, you can expect substantially less discussion of neuroscience and more discussion of AGI safety, with the exception of one more neuroscience post towards the end. Unless otherwise mentioned, everything in this post is things that I believe right now, as opposed to neuroscience consensus. Pro tip, there is never a neuroscience consensus. Relatedly, I will make minimal effort to connect my hypotheses to others in the literature, but I'm happy to chat about that in the comments section or by email. Table of contents. Audio note, I'm only narrating section 6.2 of this one, as well as the section I just narrated, but I will read out the whole table of contents in case you're curious about the rest. In section 6.2, I'll present a big picture of motivations and decision-making in the human brain and walk through how it works. The rest of the post will go through different parts of that picture in more detail. If you're in a hurry, I suggest reading to the end of section 6.2 and then quitting. In section 6.3, I'll talk about the so-called thought generator, comprising, I think, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, sensory cortex, and other areas. For ML readers familiar with actor-critic model-based RL, the thought generator is more or less a combination of the actor and the model. I'll talk about the inputs and outputs of this module and briefly sketch how its algorithm relates to neuroanatomy. In section 6.4, I'll talk about how values and rewards work in this picture, including the reward signal that drives learning and decision-making in the thought generator. In section 6.5, I'll go into a bit more detail about how and why thinking and decision-making needs to involve not only simultaneous comparisons, that is, a mechanism for generating different options in parallel and selecting the most promising one, but also sequential comparisons, that is, thinking of something, then thinking of something else, and comparing those two thoughts. For example, you might think, hmm, I think I'll go to the gym. Actually, what if I went to the cafe instead? And in section 6.6, I'll comment on the common misconception that the learning subsystem is the home of egosyntonic, internalized, deep desires, in quotes, whereas the steering subsystem is the home of egodystonic, externalized, primal urges, in quotes. 
I will advocate more generally against thinking of the two subsystems as two agents in competition. A better mental model is that the two subsystems are two interconnected gears in a single machine. Section 6.2. Big Picture. Yes, this is literally a big picture, unless you're reading on your cell phone. Audio note, there's a big diagram here that I'll describe in a moment. You saw a chunk of it in the previous post, section 5.4, but now there are a few more pieces. So we have a conceptual diagram. We have a box for thought generator, the cortex, roughly. We have a box for thought assessors, the extended striatum, including the amygdala, roughly. And we have a box for the steering subsystem, the hypothalamus and brainstem. Now, the steering subsystem gets raw informational inputs in terms of sensors, interoception, etc. And it sends ground truth value, for example a reward, to the thought generator. And it sends n-entry ground truth in hindsight to thought assessors. For example, it was in fact leading to reward, it was in fact leading to cortisol, it was in fact leading to sugar. Now, focusing on the thought generator, it receives input from raw informational input, including sensors, interoception, etc. And it sends current thought to the thought assessors, like what you're planning, seeing, remembering, understanding, attempting, etc. So now focusing on the thought assessors, they're receiving the current thought from the thought generator, and they're also receiving from the steering subsystem that N-entry ground truth in hindsight, like it was in fact leading to sugar, or it was in fact leading to cortisol. And out of the thought assessors is coming an N-entry scorecard, like will lead to reward, will lead to cortisol, will lead to sugar, etc. So the N-entry ground truth in hindsight is a response to those. The caption reads, The Big Picture. The whole post will revolve around this diagram. Note that the bracketed neuroanatomy labels in the top two boxes are a bit provisional and certainly oversimplified. There's a lot here, but don't worry. I'll walk through it bit by bit. Section 6.2.1, relation to two subsystems. Here's how this diagram fits in with my two subsystems perspective, first discussed in post number three. So here we see some areas that have been drawn on and coloured in that show the steering subsystem and the learning subsystem. There's a note for the learning subsystem. These algorithms are learned from scratch, within a lifetime. And the steering subsystem says these algorithms are genetically hard-coded. And these areas are rough and hand-drawn. The learning subsystem contains the thought generator with the current thought, the thought assessors, and the output of the thought assessors, which is the N-entry scorecard. The steering subsystem includes the steering subsystem, the N-entry ground truth in hindsight output from the steering subsystem, and the output in terms of ground truth value, which goes to the thought generator. The caption reads, same as above, but the two subsystems are highlighted in different colours. Section 6.2.2, quick run through. Before getting bogged down in details later in the post, I'll just talk through the diagram. 1. The thought generator generates a thought. The thought generator settles on a thought out of the high-dimensional space of every thought you can possibly think at that moment. Note that this space of possibilities, while vast, is constrained by current sensory input, past sensory input, and everything else in your learned world model. For example, if you're sitting at a desk in Boston, it's generally not possible for you to think that you're scuba diving off the coast of Madagascar. But you can make a plan, or whistle a tune, or recall a memory, or reflect on the meaning of life, etc. 2. Thought assessors distill the thought into a scorecard. The thought assessors are a set of perhaps hundreds or thousands of short-term predictor circuits, which I discussed more specifically in the previous post, number 5. Each predictor is trained to predict a different signal from the steering subsystem. From the perspective of a thought assessor, 
everything in the thought generator, not just outputs, but also latent variables, is context, information that they can use to make better predictions. Thus, if I'm thinking the thought, I'm going to eat candy right now, a thought assessor can predict high probability of tasting something sweet very soon, based purely on the thought. It doesn't need to rely on either external behaviour or sensory inputs, although those can be relevant context too. 3. The scorecard solves the interface problem between a learn-from-scratch world model and genetically hardwired circuitry. Remember, the current thought and situation is an insanely complicated object in a high-dimensional learn-from-scratch space of all possible thoughts you can think. Yet we need the relatively simple genetically hardwired circuitry of the steering subsystem to analyse the current thought, including issuing a judgement of whether the thought is high value or low value and whether the thought calls for cortisol release or goosebumps or pupil dilation, etc. The scorecard, in quotes, solves that interfacing problem. It distills any possible thought or belief or plan, etc., into a genetically standardised form that can be plugged directly into genetically hard-coded circuitry. 4. The steering subsystem runs some genetically hardwired algorithm. Its inputs are 1. The scorecard from the previous step, and 2. Various other information sources, like pain, metabolic status, etc., all coming from its own brainstem sensory processing system. See post number three. Its outputs include emitting hormones, motor commands, etc., as well as sending the ground truth supervisory signals shown in the diagram. As in the previous post, the term ground truth here is a bit misleading because sometimes the steering subsystem will just defer to the thought assessors. Five. The thought generator keeps or discards thoughts based on whether the steering subsystem likes them. More specifically, there's a ground truth value, a.k.a. reward. Yes, I know those don't sound synonymous. See post number five. When the value is very positive, the current thought gets strengthened, in quotes, sticks around, and can start controlling behaviour and summoning follow-up thoughts. Whereas when the value is very negative, the current thought gets immediately discarded, and the thought generator summons a new thought instead. And six, both the thought generator and the thought assessor learn from scratch, in quotes over the course of a lifetime, thanks in part to these supervisory signals from the steering subsystem. Specifically, the thought assessors learn to make better and better predictions of their ground truth in hindsight signal, a form of supervised learning, see post number four, while the thought generator learns to disproportionately generate high-value thoughts. The thought generator learning from scratch process also involves predictive learning of sensory inputs, see post number four, section 4.7. That's the end of the second excerpt, and here's the third and final one. It's from part 7, From Hard-Coded Drives to Foresighted Plans, a worked example. This one is from the 10th of March, 2022. Section 7.1, Post Summary slash Table of Contents. The previous post presented a big picture of how I think motivation works in the human brain, but it was a bit abstract. In this post, I will walk through an example. To summarise, the steps will be 1. Section 7.3. Our brains gradually develop a probabilistic generative model of the world and ourselves. 2. Section 7.4. There's a credit assignment process where something in the world model gets flagged as good, in quotes. And 3. Section 7.5. There's a reward prediction error signal roughly related to the time derivative of the expected probability of the good thing, in quotes. This signal drives us to try to make the good thing happen, including via foresighted planning. All human goals and motivations come ultimately from relatively simple genetically hard-coded circuits in the steering subsystem, the hypothalamus and brainstem, but the details can be convoluted in some cases. For example, 
sometimes I'm motivated to do a silly dance in front of a full-length mirror. Exactly what genetically hard-coded hypothalamus or brainstem circuits are upstream of that motivation? I don't know. In fact, I claim that the answer is currently not known to science. I think it would be well worth figuring out. Um, well, okay, maybe that specific example is not worth figuring out, but the broader project of reverse engineering certain aspects of the human steering subsystem, see my discussion of category B in post number three, especially those upstream of social instincts like altruism and status drive, is a project that I consider desperately important for AGI safety and utterly neglected. More on that in post number 12 and 13. In the meantime, I'll pick an example of a goal that, to a first approximation, comes from an especially straightforward and legible set of steering subsystem circuitry. Here goes. Let's say, purely hypothetically, that I ate a slice of Princess Torte cake two years ago, and it was really yummy, and ever since then I've wanted to eat one again. So my running example of an explicit goal in this post will be, I want a slice of Princess Torte. Here's a picture of a pretty-looking cake with a rose on top of it, and there's icing art. It's captioned Princess Tartar Cake. I suggest eating some in order to better understand this blog post. For science. Eating a slice of Princess Tartar is not my only goal in life, or even a particularly important one, so it has to trade off against my other goals and desires. But it is nevertheless a goal of mine, at least when I'm thinking about it, and I would indeed make complicated plans to try to bring about that goal. Like, for example, dropping subtle hints to my family. In blog posts. When my birthday is coming up. Purely hypothetically. Section 7.2. Reminder from the previous post. Big picture of motivation and decision-making. From the previous post, here's my diagram of motivation in the brain. So this is the diagram from before, with the steering subsystem, thought generator and thought assessors. I won't go over the details again. As also discussed in the previous post, we can split this up by which parts are hard-coded by the genome versus learned within a lifetime. That is, steering subsystem versus learning subsystem. And once again, the diagram has rough hand-drawn areas on it that show the thought generator and thought assessors, as well as the output of the thought assessors, the N-entry scorecard, in the learning subsystem, learned from scratch within a lifetime. And the steering subsystem, genetically hard-coded, contains the steering subsystem section and its outputs, the ground truth value or reward to the thought generator and the N-entry ground truth in hindsight signal sent to the thought assessors. Section 7.3 building a probabilistic generative world model in the cortex. The first step in our story is that, over my lifetime, my cortex, specifically the thought generator in the top left of the diagram above, has been building up a probabilistic generative model, mostly by predictive learning of sensory inputs. See post number four. AKA self-supervised learning. Basically, we learn patterns in our sensory input and patterns in the patterns, etc., until we have a nice predictive model of the world and of ourselves, A giant web of interconnected entries like grass and standing up and slices of princess tata. Predictive learning of sensory inputs is not fundamentally dependent on supervisory signals from the steering subsystem. Instead, the world provides the ground truth about whether a prediction was correct. Contrast this with, for example, navigating the trade-off between searching for food versus searching for a mate. There is no ground truth in the environment for whether the animal is trading off optimally except after generations of hindsight. In that case, we do need supervisory signals from the steering subsystem, which estimate the correct trade-off in quotes using heuristics hard-coded by evolution. You can kinda think of the is-ought divide, with the steering subsystem providing the ought to maximise genetic fitness, what ought the organism to do, 
and predictive learning of sensory inputs providing the is, what is likely to happen next under such and such circumstances. That said, the steering subsystem is indirectly involved, even in predictive learning of sensory inputs. For example, it can be motivated to go learn about a topic. Anyway, every thought I can possibly think and every plan I can possibly plan can be represented as some configuration of this generative world model data structure. The data structure is also continually getting edited as I learn and experience new things. When you think of this world model data structure, imagine many terabytes of inscrutable entries. Imagine things like, for example, pattern 847836 is defined as the following sequence, pattern 278561, then pattern 657862, then pattern 128669. Some entries have references to sensory inputs and or motor outputs. And that giant, inscrutable mess comprises my entire understanding of the world and myself. Section 7.4. Credit assignment when I first bite into the cake. As I mentioned at the top, on a fateful day two years ago, I ate a slice of Princess Torta, and it was really good. Step back to a couple seconds earlier, as I was bringing the cake towards my mouth to take my first ever bite. At that moment, I didn't yet have any particularly strong expectation of what it would taste like, or how it would make me feel. But once it was in my mouth, mmm, oh wow, that's a good cake. So here's the diagram from before, this time we have some areas highlighted. It's the steering subsystem and some of the raw informational inputs, and then some of the n-entry ground truth in hindsight outputs from the steering subsystem. In this case highlighted are, it was in fact leading to reward, and it was in fact leading to sugar. It's captioned, relevant parts of the diagram for what happened when I took my first surprisingly delicious bite of Princess Tata two years ago. So, as I took that bite, my body had a suite of autonomic reactions, releasing certain hormones, salivating, changing my heart rate and blood pressure, etc. Why? The key is that, as described in post number three, all sensory inputs split. One copy of any given sensory signal goes to the learning subsystem to be integrated into the predictive world model. See the informational inputs at the top left of the diagram. And a second copy of the same signal goes into the steering subsystem, where it serves as an input to genetically hardwired circuitry. See the informational inputs at the bottom centre of the diagram. Taste bud inputs are no exception. The former signal winds up at the gustatory cortex within the insula, part of the neocortex, in the learning subsystem. The latter at the gustatory nucleus of the medulla, part of the brainstem in the steering subsystem. After its arrival at the medulla, the taste inputs feed into various genetically hard-coded brainstem circuits, which, when also prompted with the taste and mouthfeel of the cake, and also accounting for my current physiological state and so on, execute all those autonomic reactions I mentioned. As I mentioned, before I first spit into the cake, I didn't expect it to be that good. Well, maybe intellectually I expected it. If you had asked me, I would have said and believed that the cake would be really good. But I didn't viscerally expect it. What do I mean by viscerally? What's the difference? The things I viscerally expect are over on the thought assessor side. People don't have voluntary control over their thought assessors. The latter are trained exclusively by the ground truth in hindsight signals from the brainstem. You do have some ability to manipulate them by controlling what you're thinking about, as discussed in the previous post, but to a first approximation they're doing their own thing, independent of what you want them to be doing. From an evolutionary perspective, this design makes good sense as a defence against wireheading. See my post, Reward is Not Enough, linked here. So when I bit into the cake, my thought assessors were wrong. They expected the cake to cause mild, yummy-related autonomic reactions, 
but in fact the cake caused intense yummy-related autonomic reactions. And the steering subsystem knew that the thought assessors had been wrong. So it sent correction signals up to the thought assessors' algorithms, as shown in the diagram above. Those algorithms then edited themselves, so that going forward, every time I bring a fork full of Prince's Tartar towards my mouth, the thought assessors will be more liable to predict intense hormones, goosebumps, reward, and all the other reactions that I did in fact get. So here's a diagram showing the steering subsystem and the learning subsystem, but only after my first bite. So the steering subsystem takes taste, smell, and mouthfeel inputs, has genetically hardwired circuitry that produces reactions. And now in the learning subsystem, we get the abstract concept of Princess Tartar, leading to reactions in the learn-from-scratch predictive world model, but only after my first bite. A cool thing just happened here. We started with a simple-ish hardwired algorithm, steering subsystem circuits turning certain types of taste inputs into certain hormones and autonomic reactions. But then we transferred that information into functions on the learned world model. Recall that giant inscrutable database I was talking about in the previous section. Let me pause to spell this out a bit. The ground truth in hindsight signal tweaks some of the thought assessors. The thought assessors, you'll recall from post number 5, are a set of maybe hundreds of models, each trained by supervised learning. The inputs to those trained models, or what I call context signals, see post number 4, include neurons from inside the predictive world model that encode what thought is being thunk right now. So we wind up with a function, the trained model, whose input includes things like whether my current thought activates the abstract concept of Princess Tartar, and whose output is a signal that tells the steering subsystem to consider salivating, etc. I call this step, where we edit the thought assessors, credit assignment. Much more about that process in upcoming posts, including how it can go awry. So now the thought assessors have learned that whenever the my self-eating Princess Tartar concept lights up in the world model, then they should issue predictions of the corresponding hormones, other reactions, and reward. Section 7.5. Planning towards goals via reward shaping. I don't have a particularly rigorous model for this step, but I think I can lean on intuitions a bit in order to fill in the rest of the story. So here's a diagram. It has a blue arrow with heads pointing in each direction. One direction is labelled, the eating Princess Tartar concept in my world model is barely lit up or activated. And in the other direction, at the other extreme, we have the eating Princess Tartar concept in my world model is very strongly lit up or activated. And then there are points along that line that have been marked in red. So down the not lit up or activated end, we have I'm idly thinking about Princess Tartar. And then as we move down towards the very strongly lit up end, we have I think I'd like to eat Princess Tartar, but I'm not sure how. Hmm, if I do this plan, maybe I could eat Princess Tartar this week. Moving further along the line, you know what, that's a good plan. I'm going to really do that. Next, I'm going to eat Princess Tartar in five minutes. And now we're getting right down the other end. A forkful of Princess Tartar is heading towards my mouth. And finally, I am eating Princess Tartar. Remember, ever since my first bite of Princess Tartar two years ago, the thought assessors in my brain have been inspecting each thought I think, checking whether the myself eating Princess Tartar concept in my world model is lit up or activated, and to the extent that it is, issuing a suggestion to prepare for rewards, salivation, goosebumps, and so on. The diagram above suggests a series of thoughts that I think would light up the world model concept more and more, as we go from top to bottom. To get the intuition here, maybe try replacing Princess Tartar with Super Salty Cracker. Then go down the list, and try to feel how each thought would make you salivate more and more. Or better yet, replace Eating Princess Tartar with Asking My Crush Out on a Date. 
Go down the list and try to feel how each thought makes your heart rate jump up higher and higher. Here's another way to think about it. If you imagine the world model being vaguely like a PGM, you can imagine that the degree of pattern matching corresponds roughly to the probability assigned to the eating Princess Tartar node in the PGM. For example, if you're confident in X, and X weakly implies Y, and Y weakly implies Z, and Z weakly implies eating Princess Tartar, then eating Princess Tartar gets a very low but non-zero probability, aka weak activation. And this is akin to having a far-fetched but not completely impossible plan to eat Princess Tartar. Don't take this paragraph too literally, I'm just trying to summon intuitions here. I'm really hoping this kind of thing is intuitive. After all, I've seen it reinvented numerous times. For example, David Hume, quote, The first circumstance that strikes my eye is the great resemblance betwixt our impressions and ideas in every other particular, except their degree of force and vivacity, end quote. And here's William James, quote, it is hardly possible to confound the liveliest image of fantasy with the weakest real sensation. End quote. In both these cases, I think the authors are gesturing at the idea that imagination activates some of the same mental constructs, latent variables in the world model, as perception does, but that imagination activates them more weakly than perception. Okay, if you're still with me, let's go back to my decision-making model, now with different parts highlighted. So here's the diagram again. This time the highlighted parts are the steering subsystem, the thought generator, and the thought assessors. The output from the steering subsystem to the thought generator in terms of ground truth value or reward. The informational inputs to the thought generator, the current thought from the thought generator to the thought assessors, and then the output from the thought assessors in terms of n-entry scorecard, like will it lead to reward, will it lead to cortisol, will it lead to sugar, and will it lead to goosebumps. Again, every time I think a thought... The steering subsystem looks at the corresponding scorecard and issues a corresponding reward. Recall also that the active thought slash plan gets thrown out when its reward signal is negative, and it gets kept and strengthened when its reward is positive. I'll oversimplify for a second and ignore everything except the value function, aka the will-lead-to-reward thought assessor. And I'll also assume the steering subsystem just defers to that proposed value, rather than overruling it. See post number 6. In this case, each time our thoughts move down a notch on the purple arrow diagram above, from idle musing about Princess Tartar to a hypothetical plan to get Princess Tartar, to a decision to get Princess Tartar, etc., there's an immediate positive reward, so that the new thought gets strengthened and gets to establish itself. And conversely, every time we move back up the list, from decision to hypothetical plan to idle musing, there's an immediate negative reward, so that thought gets thrown out and we go back to whatever we were thinking before. It's a ratchet. The system naturally pushes its way down the list, making and executing a good plan to eat cake. So there you have it. From this kind of setup, I think we're well on the way to explaining the full suite of behaviours associated with humans doing foresighted planning towards explicit goals, including knowing that you have the goal, making a plan, pursuing instrumental strategies as part of the plan, replacing good plans with even better plans, updating plans as the situation changes, pining in vain for unattainable goals, and so on. Section 7.5.1 The Other Thought Assessors Or the heroic feat of ordering a cake for next week when you're feeling nauseous right now. By the way, what of the other thought assessors? Princess Tarta, after all, is not just associated with will lead to rewards, but also will lead to sweet taste, will lead to salivation, etc. Do those play any role? Sure. For one thing, as I bring the fork towards my mouth, 
on the verge of consummating my cake-eating plan, I'll start salivating and releasing cortisol in preparation. But what about the process of foresighted planning, calling the bakery, etc.? I think the other non-value function thought assessors are relevant there too, at least to some extent. Side note, I happen to think there's something akin to less discounting, or a discount factor closer to one, for the value function compared to various other thought assessors, such that complicated indirect distant-in-time plans are predominantly driven by the value function. This guess comes from the incentive-learning psychological literature, but that's a story for a different blog post. Anyway, it's not all or nothing. I figure the other assessors are at least somewhat relevant, even for distant plans, as in the example here. And here's an example of the non-value function thought assessors being relevant too. Imagine you're feeling terribly nauseous. Of course, your steering subsystem knows that you're feeling terribly nauseous. And then suppose it sees you thinking a thought that seems to be leading towards eating. In that case, the steering subsystem may say, that's a terrible thought, negative reward. Okay, so you're feeling nauseous, and you pick up the phone to place your order at the bakery. This thought gets weakly but noticeably flagged by the thought assessors as likely to lead to eating. Your steering subsystem sees that and says, boo, given my current nausea, that seems like a bad thought. It will feel a bit aversive. Yuck, I'm really ordering this huge cake, you say to yourself. Logically, you know that come next week when you actually receive the cake, you won't feel nauseous anymore, and you'll be delighted to have the cake. But still, right now, you feel kind of gross and unmotivated to order it. Do you order the cake anyway? Sure. Maybe the value function, aka the will-lead-to-reward thought assessor, is strong enough to overrule the effects of the will-lead-to-eating thought assessor. Or maybe you call up a different motivation. You imagine yourself as the kind of person who has good foresight and makes good, sensible decisions, and who isn't stuck in the moment. That's a different thought in your head, which consequently activates a different set of thought assessors, and maybe that gets high value from the steering subsystem. Either way, you do in fact call the bakery and place the cake order for next week, despite feeling nauseous right now. What a heroic act. That's the end of the excerpt that's included in the core curriculum for the AGI Safety Fundamentals course. This was several chapters from Intro to Brain-Like AGI Safety by Stephen Burns. This narration was by Perrin Walker and produced by Type 3 Audio.